The passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we have sung together some incredible truths this morning. We have heard them. Our hearts have joined in. Our lips have joined in. You are the focus of our worship. You are the focus of Christmas. And I pray, Lord, that that focus would continue as we hear from you and from your word. Lord, would your spirit be with us in a special way this morning to open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear you? And would your spirit be with us to change us, Lord, as we behold your beauty? We thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. We recognize it's only by your grace, and so we pray that by your grace you would continue to meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite uh, and earliest memories was when my folks would load me and my brother and sister up in our blue station wagon the night before we would leave town to go visit my grandparents, and they would take us around town to go look at Christmas lights together. Uh, and uh, it's something we do now with our kids every Christmas Eve after the Christmas Eve service. We take the long, road, r- long route home, and, uh, and we go looking at Christmas lights together. And some of you probably have a, a similar tradition. It's a fun thing to do. Uh, it's fun to find the houses that are kind of simple and tasteful, but then there's also, you know, the holy grail of Christmas lights. You're looking for that house where basically Christmas threw up everywhere, and there's, you know, 32 inflatables in the yard that are moving, and, you know, when, when, the, when they plug in every night, the entire neighborhood has this power surge that goes down and comes up. Uh, the, other, the other day, I was driving down one street where clearly the neighbors across either side of the street were in this competition with each other. 
It's like the entire stretch is basically dark, and then there's this glowing double beacon at the end of the street, and there's multiple inflatables on every side, and you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It was awesome. Now, tasteful or tacky, there's something festive and joyful about this holiday tradition of you know, displaying lights at Christmas time. And we do it not just on our houses, we do it on our Christmas trees and, and uh, in our windows and on our Advent wreath and, and so on. Light is one of the predominant symbols of Christmas. It's a joyful symbol and for a very good reason. It's a very biblical symbol as we celebrate the advent of Jesus, whom John tells us is the true light that gives light to every person who's coming into the world. But the thing about light is that it's only a big deal when you're surrounded by darkness. That's the only time you really stop to appreciate it. And we don't plug in our lights on our house. This is the first year I've actually put lights up on the house. We'll could place bets on how long they're up there and, and how long it takes me to get them down. But, uh, you know, we don't, do, we don't plug those in until nightfall because nobody can see and appreciate them until that point. Until it's dark out, you can't see those lights. You never see anybody walking down the street in the middle of the day using a flashlight to, see, to find their way. We just don't do that. But when the lights go out in the middle of a winter storm, that's when you're, you know, looking for the flashlight. That's when you're trying to figure out where in the world did you leave the candles as you kind of trip over furniture and grope in the dark trying to find some sort of light. Well, in the same way, we only begin to truly understand Christmas when we see it against the backdrop of the darkness of this fallen world. And this world is a dark place. It's a broken place. It doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Even in a season as happy as Christmas time, when everyone is supposed to be joyful and you're told everywhere you go to be holly and jolly and, and, and so on, we can't escape the fact that this world is not right. In fact, for some of us, Christmas only emphasizes that darkness. For those who've lost a parent, or a grandparent, or a spouse, or a child, or a, or a sibling, or a close friend this year. It's hard getting together and celebrating. It just doesn't feel right. You know, for some who've always wanted to be married, or, or the couple who's always wanted to have a child of their own, but for whatever reason the Lord's never done that, it can be hard getting all of these Christmas cards in the mail every year with all these shining happy families on them reminding you of what you still don't have. That can be hard. For some of us, the, the rampant consumerism just serves to reinforce how desperate our financial situation really is. And we're trying to figure out, what, what am I going to tell my kid to say when he goes back to school in January and everybody's talking about their new iPhone 6 or their new iPad mini or whatever it is, and, and he's got to somehow explain we didn't do Christmas because we had to keep the electricity on. You know, even just little annoyances. Uh, for instance, you know, half of my family isn't here this morning because one of our kids is sick again. It's like, really? On Christmas? Come on, people. You know, we're supposed to get all of the family together in their Christmas outfits so we can get a family picture and, and look happy. That's what we're supposed to do, right? We can't do that. And it's not a big deal. 
But it's like, ah, it's not supposed to work that way. For many of us, it's, it's not light that we see at Christmas time, it's darkness. And that darkness in our circumstances or on the surface often parallels a darkness that's hidden in our hearts. The darkness of depression. Never feeling like I'm ever really going to measure up or like I'm ever really going to be good enough and just living daily in this, this cloud of hopelessness and loneliness and defeat. The darkness of anxiety and fear. Fear of what might happen if I dare loosen my pretend grip of control on this world. And just living with that anxiety. The darkness of guilt or shame over what I've said or what I've done or what I've not done. A darkness that makes me want to hide, to, to actually stay there in the very thing I hate for fear of the truth of who I really am being exposed by the light. Where can I find joy? When the lights go out. If that's a question that you can imagine yourself asking. Then you are exactly where you need to be. For understanding the true beauty and joy of Christmas. We can't make sense of the light until we see it against the darkness. And this darkness that we feel is it's nothing new. It's part of the human story. It's almost as old as creation itself. It was part of ancient Israel's story in the Old Testament as well. When we celebrate Christmas, we sometimes forget that the Christmas story doesn't start in the New Testament with Matthew and the nativity and all that. That's picking up a story that's been going on for a long time, told throughout the Old Testament. It's the story of God, the story of ancient Israel, the story of all humanity, as we've been reminded with each of the Advent lightings this season. And I want to look at an episode in ancient Israel's story this morning with you as we try to make some sense of the light and joy that we find at Christmas. And so if you have a Bible in front of you, there should be one in the rack uh, there, or you know, you'll be able to find the appropriate scriptures on the screen behind me. It's page 573 in the Pew Bible. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. It's about in the middle of the book. Isaiah was written some 800 years before the birth of Christ, during a time when the kingdom of Israel was split in two. So you had the kingdom of Judah in the south that was ruled by David's descendants, And then you had the kingdom of Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, in the north. And in Isaiah 7 through 12, we're told of a conflict between these two kingdoms. Israel in the north has aligned with Syria and is threatening to attack Judah and replace Judah's king with one of their own puppets so that they can rule Judah as well. And so the dark clouds of war are rolling over the horizon in this story. And Ahaz, who's the the rightful king of Judah, the southern kingdom, he has to decide what he's going to do in the face of this threat. 
But God sends him the prophet Isaiah to help him, to tell him what to do, to show him. And Isaiah tells him, trust in the Lord. You don't need to worry about these two guys. God's going to take care of them. You need to trust me. And if you don't stand firm in faith, you won't stand at all. I'm your only hope. You've got to trust in the Lord. Ahaz, however, prefers to trust in the king of Assyria instead, which is another greater, bigger nation than Judah or Israel, whom he is hoping will kind of come in and take out the threat. And that's exactly what Ahaz does. He turns a deaf ear to God, and instead he puts his hope in this other king who can come in and provide the muscle that he needs to eliminate the threat. The problem is, is that what Ahaz doesn't realize is that the same flood that is about to, to break over Israel and Syria is going to overflow into Judah as well. It's like unleashing a monster. And that monster is going to come and occupy Judah too. Because Ahaz and Judah have refused to trust God, the lights are beginning to go out. There are dark days ahead. Isaiah describes what they will face in chapter 7. Verse 23, he says, In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose, where sheep tread. It's a picture of desolation and ruin. The land will have been so devastated and depopulated by Assyria that you can't farm it anymore. It's turned into wild land. And so the only hope you have for food is the few animals you still have around and what you can find in the wild. That's what's going to happen to them. All because Judah's king, who's supposed to lead his people according to God's word, who's supposed to listen to the prophet, instead follows his own way and trusts in the wrong God. And so Isaiah warns at the end of chapter 8, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Have you ever punished your children for doing something wrong, and then they kind of turn around and blame you and hate you for it? Or maybe you as a child have done that to your parents? Uh, you know, you warn your kids, if you do this, you're going to lose this privilege. They do it, they lose it, and now it's your fault. That's what Israel's doing in this story. God has warned them over and over again, trust me, follow me, listen to my prophets. Israel instead, Judah, Ahaz, the king, have instead gone their own way. Now they're living with the consequences, and they're blaming God for the bad things that are happening. That's what they're doing. But God is just. He's righteous and he's holy. 
He alone deserves their worship and their allegiance. He's the one who created them. He's the one who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one who's given them his word. He's the one who has been with them in every way. He deserves their allegiance and their trust, but they're giving it to somebody else. They're they're giving it to this false god. They're treating the king of Assyria like a, a cheap imitation, a pretend god, a pathetic replacement. And so basically God's saying, if that's the way you want to go, here's what you're going to live with. And he's just kind of giving them what he wants, what they want in his judgment. As a result, everywhere they look, all they see is darkness, gloom, and anguish. It's the darkness of being separated from God. And that's the real darkness we should worry about. The greatest darkness in this world is not the brokenness that we experience in different ways every day, whether that's relational or emotional or physical or financial. Those are all symptoms and echoes of a deeper problem, the problem of human rebellion against God and the judgment that comes with it for our sin. And that's a problem as you read through the scriptures that every single one of us is guilty of. Every single one of us has, has looked at how things work or has, has looked at what God has said and, and thought to ourselves, you know what, I can do better than that. I don't think God knows what he's talking about. I'm going to do this instead of follow him. In little ways and big ways, we've all done it. That's the deeper problem of the human story. And that doesn't mean that every single trial we face is a direct result of some mistake or sin that we've made, but that that these problems didn't exist until humans threw off God's rule and tried to take his throne for ourselves. And so as a result, the entire fabric of creation has been torn and fractured. Sin and death rule instead of life and joy that God intended. That's the deepest darkness of the human experience. And every little frustration and trial is a reminder of that bigger problem that we need resolved, that bigger darkness that we need rescued from. And we feel that in different ways. And Judah feels it in a big way in this story. They've sinned against God and the lights have gone out. And God would be totally justified to end the story right there. But he doesn't. Praise God that he doesn't. Instead, the prophet's voice turns from judgment to promise. A promise of a light that's going to break through that gloom and deep darkness and to restore joy to God's people. Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And You can hear the contrast in those verses from the way chapter 8 ended with the darkness and gloom and deep darkness to now that 
all of that's going to be dispelled. Instead, they're going to have light. Zebulun and Naphtali were, were northern tribes, part of the northern kingdom beyond the Jordan. They were the first ones to feel the king of Assyria's sword when that judgment came. In that place, God's going to send his light. And that light will flood and overflow to all of his people, north and south. And as a result, the gloom of God's people will be replaced with joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's joy that comes when the light pierces the darkness. I mean, living in New England, most of us have experienced at some point a power outage. They're kind of an annual ritual here. And some of us have experienced ones that go days upon days. And, and that moment when, you know, you've, you've spent every catalog in the house in the fireplace trying to stay warm, and the lights finally come back on, your heart does this little cartwheel. There's a little joy and excitement in that. You take that and multiply that by about a million, and you begin to sense the joy that comes when light finally breaks through the darkness of Judah's gloom and this terrible threat that hangs over there, not just the threat of Assyria, but of God's judgment for their sin. What is that joy based on? Isaiah describes it like the joy of a harvest, you know, dividing the spoil. It's a picture of moving from fear to joy. Most of us don't know what it's like for our entire uh, year's menu to be contingent on a good harvest in the fall. We just go to stop and shop when we need more food. But in an agrarian society, that's a big deal. If you don't get a good crop in the fall, it's going to be a bad year ahead. And so the joy that comes with the full harvest or the joy that comes when the battle's over and you're finally divvying up your vanquished enemy's resources, moving from fear to joy, to rest. The anxiety's gone. That's the kind of joy that this is going to bring. But what is that joy based on? What is the actual light that's going to break the darkness? Well, notice how in the next three verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, every single verse starts with the word for. That's the author telling us that he's going to give us three reasons for this joy that's about to break. The first two tell us what's going to happen that will, you know, be bring such joy. And the third one tells us how that's going to happen, what that, ultimate, what that joy ultimately hangs on. And so, so in, the, in the first reason, verse 4, the first reason for their joy is that when the light finally dawns, Israel's oppression and slavery is going to be over. They're going to be free. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The yoke, the staff, the rod, those are all imagery of oppression and slavery. And that will break just as God showed up with Gideon to help defeat the Midianites back in the book of Judges, God's going to show up again to free his people from their oppression. But the slavery they're being freed from here is not like the slavery they had when they were in Egypt. It's a much more subtle and yet equally pervasive 
burden and oppression that comes from being occupied territory. Assyria constantly living as a threat over them. My brother-in-law grew up in El Salvador during the Civil War. And he remembers every night after dark having to stay on the floor. That's how he spent his childhood. Because if your head came up over the window, you were liable to get shot. That's the oppression and fear of living in occupied territory, of living in a war zone. Imagine the joy of being able to sit in your chair after dark and just relax after years of doing that. There's great joy. That's freedom. That's the kind of freedom God's going to bring when this light finally dawns. And it comes because of the next reason in verse 5, that the battle's finally over. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a pretty graphic verse when you kind of stop and look at the details of it. You know, garments rolled in blood and such. And kind of, what, what does that have to do with joy? You know, yesterday I uh, went to see volume three of the Hobbit trilogy with the youth group. Uh, the Battle of Five Armies. I decided they needed some extra pastoral oversight for that kind of outing. So I invited myself, really sacrificed, and, and went along with them. Uh, but as you can imagine, in a movie entitled The Battle of Five Armies, there's a lot of fighting. A lot of fighting. And every now and then you have these scenes where you just have this vista of the battlefield where the slain are just laying around everywhere. Somebody's got to clean that up when the battle's over. Somebody's got to do something with all of that. That's what the imagery is talking about here. Taking all of the boots, all of the garments rolled in blood, and putting them into a big bonfire because the battle is over. It's graphic, but it's so liberating, that picture. In fact, there's a sense of finality in it here. Bloodstained clothing might reasonably be burned, but why destroy valuable boots that can be easily cleaned up and reused in another war unless there's not going to be another war? There's a sense of finality. In other words, there is no more war once this king shows up in his full glory. When the light pierces the darkness, Israel's slavery will be ended, the battle will be finished, all battles will be finished. God is going to make right everything that's wrong in this world, the war, but also the sin that causes it. And we long for that joy and that freedom, don't we? We long for it. To know that the difficulties that we face, that the sin that continues to plague our hearts will finally and forever be done away with. And so what does that ultimately rest on what what's going to bring about this joy that every heart cries out for how will the light dawn i mean is god asking israel here to just kind of clean up their act and try harder and fix things themselves is that what israel needs is that is that what we need at christmas just more christmas cheer and a little bit more good deeds and the world would just be a better place right is that what he's telling us i mean those things are great Obviously, but that's not what we need. We need a light, not that comes from within us, but the light of God coming down from heaven. 
out of his own zeal for his name and his people to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the way he's going to do that is by sending his son to be our king. And that brings us to the, the third basis for joy and the climax of this passage the, that we heard beautifully sung earlier, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, when you think about the imagery of the battle being over, finally being won, because a king's going to show up, this isn't exactly what you picture. You know, for to us, a child is born. You know, we, we kind of would normally picture like, you know, the powerful king's going to show up with his, you know, two-edged sword and just kind of take care of business. But, but instead, we see that the ultimate hope lies in the birth of a child, of a baby. But not just any child, the child, the one that Israel's been waiting for. A child who's going to sit on David's throne and do for God's people what Ahaz and what every other king has failed to do to bring about real justice, real peace. Not just with the surrounding nations, but with God himself. A child who comes into the world in the most human of ways, through birth, but is described in language that far surpasses our expectations for any merely human king. There's something human and divine about this child at the same time. He is the wonderful counselor. And when we spend our days tripping around in the darkness trying to figure out how to go, he's the one who's wise enough to show us the way. He's mighty God. He accomplishes God's plans in God's power as God himself showing up. He is the everlasting father. Whereas it's, it was common for ancient kings to claim to be a father to their people, here is one who's going to care for his people, not temporarily or imperfectly, but in perfect care forever. He's an everlasting father Look at verse 7 again and notice the language of forever, how it's repeated there. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We can rest in this king because he's always going to be around to do what is right and to make right what is wrong. He is God with us as Isaiah said in chapter 7. Finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And isn't that what we really need? When we think about whatever our experience is living in the darkness, that's what we want. We want peace. We want wholeness. We want things to be made right. For this world to be right, to be at peace again, for our lives and our relationships to be at peace. No more arguments at Christmas. No more 
broken relationships with family or friends, for our hearts to be made whole once more, never to be broken again by sin or its effects, for our bodies to be made whole again, free of illness, disease, free from death itself, for our relationship with God to be at peace. That was the greatest darkness. It's also the greatest light, to know God. To know that when he looks upon me and he sees me for who I really am, because I can't hide before him, that when he looks upon me, what I want to know more than anything else is that when he sees me, he smiles. That he smiles like a loving father. That he's not up there frustrated and wringing his hands and wagging his finger because I messed up again and again and again, but he is opening his arms to accept me and love me. That's, isn't that what we all really want for Christmas when it comes down to it? To be right with God. This king that's promised, only this king can make that happen. Only this king. God doesn't leave us in the darkness of our sin, but he promises to send his light, and he fulfills that through his eternal son, Jesus. That's the joy of Christmas. I don't think it's a coincidence that when the shepherds in Luke 2 are out on their hill, that they beheld the light of God's glory as the angels announced the birth of God's son, their king, echoing the very words of Isaiah 9. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles, that the light of God dawned in those northern regions just like he said it would. And with the announcement of Jesus' birth in the Gospels begins to unfold the hope and the joy of all that Isaiah has promised. Through this king, God will establish righteousness and justice and peace. He will mend all that's broken in this world through sin. Through this king, he will swallow up darkness forever. Can you dream about that? Isn't that amazing? He's going to do it in stages. First, he's going to come and win the battle on the cross. Then he will return later to claim the prize. And he will do it at great cost to self. If you read through the book of Isaiah and kind of pay attention to how it's put together, you realize that the promised king in the early chapters of Isaiah is the same person as the suffering servant in the later chapters of Isaiah. The one from Isaiah 53 who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's a king. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He's the prince of peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone 
to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the darkness of us all. Think about the darkness that we feel at Christmas against the backdrop of that picture of our king who willingly took our sin on himself. One author writes, With the joy over this little baby in the manger came the promised reality that the joy would soon turn to momentary grief. We have a perfect heavenly father who knows what it means to grieve over loss. He knew where the story was going. The darkness of our Christmas is not foreign to God. He's not aloof. He is present with us because he knows us deeply and he walks with us in our pain. He has endured deep pain too. When we think about Christmas and are are heartbroken to face another holiday with tears, we have hope. While Mary faced heart-piercing grief as she birthed her son, this grief was for the good of us all. While God the Son suffered at the crucifixion, by his sufferings, we are healed. And he is a great high priest who can sympathize with our sufferings. God has not left us alone in the darkness of this world. That is the joy of Christmas. It's knowing that he's not left us in the darkness, but he entered into that darkness through Jesus to swallow it by giving his own life. And all who turn from sin and trust in that king can know the joy that comes with that forever. The joy of Christmas is that even when the lights still go out while we wait for Christ's return, we have a king who's familiar with our sufferings, who has disarmed sin and darkness, and who will come again to remove them forever. It's a beautiful picture at the end of Revelation when it's describing the new creation. There's this strange line in there, and it says there is no sun in that new creation, that new kingdom, because the lamb is the lamp. Jesus, his light will shine so glorious that you don't even need a sun when he returns. May we know that joy. May we have that hope this Christmas season. Let's pray.